Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Open in prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King, we thank you again for this uh, wonderful opportunity, for, Father, for a brand new year, a new season, um, another Sabbath, uh, high holy days in front of us. We know that your promises are that you'll be with us during these times, and so we, we eagerly anticipate what your Spirit is going to reveal to us during these special times. Father, open our eyes to see your wonderful glory. Enlarge our capacity to receive your uh, wisdom and your goodness and your mercy. Help us to grow in such a way so that we can become better witnesses for you, even better this year than we were last year. Forgive us where we fall short. Help us to um, continue to walk circumspectly because of the evil days in front of us. Help us during this Galatian study. It's a difficult uh, undertaking, and we at times are going to be uh, confused, we admit, and so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you will be our teacher this evening, and that we would retain what it is you're trying to um, explain to us. So open the words of your Torah to us, and we'll be careful to give you the uh, praise and the thanks in Yeshua's authority. Amen. All right, well, welcome again, everyone, to a study on exegeting Galatians. I gave you a handout last week, and I said that we would talk about Yom Truah. Uh, the Feast of um, Trumpets, or some people call it Rosh Hashanah. Just by show of hands, how many of you want to talk about Rosh Hashanah, and how many of you want to talk about Galatians? Let's see a show of hands. Who wants to talk about Rosh Hashanah or Yom Tua? You want to talk about both? We've, on, we've only got, we've got less than an hour, so we can't get a, Rosh Hashanah. And who? See how you are? Get a trumpet, blow it. <laughs> There's your time. <laughs> who wants to talk about Galatians tonight? We have more on Galatians. I will just touch on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Teruah. Mark's doing a great sermon series on that, and I think it's worth getting the tapes or at least go to the website and get the sermons. Um, I did a commentary. You guys read mine. I didn't do any audios this year. Uh, But more or less, um, I think that we've got a good grasp of Rosh Hashanah or Yom Teruah in that God wants us to see in these festivals the themes of his son's ministry. And I, if we lose sight of that, I think we're not seeing what he's trying to show us. So, obviously, all of us caught that, right? Rosh Hashanah is about awaken, O sleeper. Um, arise and, and await or be ready yourself for the king is coming. And in his return, he is going to judge. He's going to reward. Now, we're talking about a Bema seat um, 
uh, type judgment where we are rewarded for that which we um, performed correctly or did not perform very good. Uh, it's, um, but for those who don't know Hashem, it's a fearful time. And, and rightly so, should be. So, in a nutshell, uh, Rosh Hashanah is, is about Yeshua's return. I do believe that, um, and you read my commentary. Hopefully you read my commentary. Right? Um, I do believe that he's going to return around this time of year. Could be on a Rosh Hashanah or on a Yom Kippur or on a Sukkot. But I don't think he can be just haphazardly at any time at any moment. Such as has been taught in the last 1,500 or so years that he could just show up you know, before I finish my sentence, and it could be like in the middle, in the dead of spring or the middle of December or something like that. God doesn't seem to operate on those uh, on those levels. He seems to be more orderly than that. And so I think we've just fundamentally misunderstood the phrase, no one knows the day or the hour and things like that. In fact, I'll just leave with this, and then I'll talk about Galatians. Um, the phrase, no man knows the day or the hour, by even by Yeshua's day, it had become an idiom for Rosh Hashanah. How so? Does anyone know? Anyone want to share? And then I have to repeat it on tape again. I'll let you share, and then you can add to hers. Exactly. Exactly. Nobody knows the day they are when the new moon is going to show up. Ryan, did you want to add anything to that? The observations based out of Jerusalem, right? How many of you have never heard that before? You have, you are familiar with the verse in Matthew 24, Yeshua, more or less, right around property 25, 26, 27, middle of the passage. He he says something like, "But no man knoweth the day or the hour." Speaking of his return, and yet that phrase alone, if taken at face value, seems to mean that we're just completely in the dark. However, this particular feast of all the seven feasts on the Leviticus seven calendar. Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, Pentecost, Yom Tuah, uh, Yom Kippur, Sukkot. Seven feasts there. Of those seven, this is the only one that starts at the beginning of a month. All the other ones find themselves in the middle of a month. Okay, Passover on the 14th, Unleavened Bread on the 15th, First Fruits on the 16th, Pentecost 50 days after um, Unleavened Bread or, or first, uh, the, the First Fruits Barley. 50 days of that, and then um, Yom Kippur 10 days after the first of the month, and, and Sukkot 15 days, 15 days of the seventh month. This is the only one that starts on the first of a month, and a month is determined by the moon sighting. At least in ancient Israel it was, just like Ryan pointed out. So if you know anything about moon cycles, and I read it, I put it in my paper there, when the moon is in conjunction with the sun, and we have true conjunction, you can't see the moon, because the sun's in the way. So, um, or that is to say... The way the earth is situated, you couldn't see it. The, the sun's not really in the way, but you know what I mean. Um, and then we're not talking about an eclipse either. So all, we, we have to wait like either we're either a day early or a day off from the true lunar month. So this particular festival is determined by the beginning of the, of the month. And so it makes it a very peculiar festival. So, and if it's cloudy, that could also complicate things. Yeah. So it, it took on the idiom, the day of which no man knew the day or the hour. And that was already well known in Yeshua's day. Rabbinic writings attested this, by the way. And so when Yeshua say, states that phrase, it's rather than, rather than swinging, swinging the pendulum on the side of, we don't have a clue, it's almost like he swung the pendulum all the way to the other second and said, I'll give you an insider tip. <laughs> kind of like a, a, a decoded or a, you know, a coded clue. So that we have to, we're like, whoa. I, I think that the, the Talmudian back then probably went, 
Whoa, okay. And if you look at the festivals and his and his ministry and his and and all that, it, it lines up. So uh, some people in the church are trying, starting to figure that out. Others are still just confident that he could come at any minute. Let's talk about Galatians. I don't have a handout for you because I want to just continue this kind of thought of stirring up the sediment within our, this classroom as to what Galatians is about and what we're going to get into. I handed you one one handout so far, right? The next handout on the list is going to continue this, this uh, talk about circumcision. Because in order to understand the conflict in Galatians, we have to know what is driving Paul's consternation. Now, who wasn't here last week? Okay. Who wasn't here the very first week? All of you were here? A few of you were? All right. Overview of Galatians. Generally speaking, there is what really happened, and then there's what history... What what the church says happened. I pick on the church when it comes to Galatians a lot because I don't read a lot of rabbinic commentaries on Galatians. That's just the way it is. You guys understand how why that is, right? They're not preoccupied with the New Testament. But the Christian church is, as rightly should be. So um, when you read Galatians, we're going to have, in Christian theology, we're going to have those who, who've carried the most weight uh, lending their opinion to the argument. For instance, um, more or less, what happened in... Luther's day, and as far as him understanding Paul and then taking that tradition and pushing it forward to down to today is um, is is amazing. Most Christians' view of Galatians and Paul's view, or what Paul, Paul's writing about in Galatians, is colored by Luther's view. So we've aptly, we of, we I'm speaking like uh, we messianics who are not of that persuasion, and most of us in this room are not of that persuasion either. But most of us... Um, We'll look at that and call it the Luther view or the Reformation view. What is the Reformation view of Galatians? In a nutshell, and I'll just describe it. I'm not saying I agree with it. I'm just going to describe it as if I'm your average mainline Christian theologian. Okay? Paul had established communities in Galatia. They were genuine believers comprised of Jew and Gentile, generally speaking. Just I'm going to use those black and white terms. In that establishing of those people groups, he had given them the genuine gospel of freedom in Yeshua. That is to say, salvation by grace through faith, the whole nine yards that we understand in dogmatic Christianity. What had ended up happening, however, some people either had snuck in or some people were already there, began introducing the Galatians, uh, particularly the, the Christian one, the non-Jewish ones, to the idea that they needed to be, be keeping the Torah as well as believing in Jesus. That is to say, um, Paul's uh, detractors were... Uh, were, um, how would I put it, they were convinced, th- well-meaning by the way, they were convinced that the Christians or the, the, the Galatian Christians, the Gentile Christians, weren't, um, they weren't allowed to simply disregard Torah. They had to also keep Torah. Because the belief from their point of view, again, I'm still speaking as if I'm a Christian, the belief from the um, Jewish side of the house was that God gave the Torah to Israel, that is to say to Jews, and therefore if the Christians are going to come in and call God their father or Abraham their father and God their God, then they need to keep the Torah as well. Kind of like the way we read it now. Okay, um, The Torah is applicable. So the... The Judaizers, as they've been called, are going to tell you, the, the Gentile Christians, you guys have faith in Messiah, but that's not good enough. You need to also keep the law. You need to keep the Sabbath, the dietary laws, the festivals, uh, all the, the whole nine yards. You need to do all that stuff, um, just like we have to do it. And what Paul 
being a good Christian like he is, he came in and he had to say, no, 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 that's old dispensation. In Messiah, at the death of Messiah, the law was nailed to the cross, and we're no longer under the law. Therefore, we're no longer obligated to keep the, the Sabbath, the kosher, all that stuff. All that's been superseded by faith in Messiah and grace. We're no longer under the law, we're under grace. Therefore, he, Paul writes the letter in Galatians, and he's upset at the Judaizers for teaching them that they have to go back under the law, which was bondage. In a word... Judaism is out, Christianity is in. That's standard Christian theology. Anyone unfamiliar with that view? Everyone pretty much knows. All right. When we, what, there are manifold problems with that view. Let's name some of them. What's Paul's position on Torah based on what we have written by Paul or by Luke or other? Does, does this Torah seem to be bondage? What's that? He's a Torah keeper, yeah. So, so if he's a Torah keeper, but he's writing a letter to Gentiles telling them they don't have to keep Torah, we only have one of two choices. Either A, Paul's a hypocrite, we can't trust him, we've got to throw him out. Or B, Paul's genuine, but he's genuine in the sense that the Torah is only for Jews, but it's not for Gentiles. So that's a possibility that the church is also accepted. The Torah is for... Because you, 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 all of you have probably met a well-meaning non-Jewish person. Could be your friends, families, who knows. A well-meaning Jewish, non-Jewish person who said to you, in response to you keeping Sabbath kosher and all this stuff and you trying to maybe witness to them or lead them down that Hebraic path, they've responded something like, but I'm not Jewish. What do they mean by I'm not Jewish? I don't have to do those. Yeah, I don't have to keep Torah. Yeah. So it's, 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 it would then allow Paul to be a Torah keeper who said that t- for Paul to be a Torah keeper, because everyone knows Paul was Jewish, for Paul to be a Torah keeper but yet tell his Gentile audience, you guys don't have to do it. So expect the Jews to keep a different standard than the Gentiles, which again is untenable. But at least it's it's a it's a softer sell than than him just being a stone cold hypocrite, right? So the bottom line is we do we have many problems with the prevailing Christian view of Paul and Galatians. Yes, question. That's Matthew five. Yep. We have answer. We have standard Christian answers for those as well. He fulfilled it, so we don't have to. Yeah. More or less, what we what I liken to what I liken opening up the book of Galatians and trying to figure out what happened is I liken it. I've told Ryan about this, and this is just for me. It works for me. If it works for you, you can have it too. What I liken it to is like a courtroom's case, and you have um, a defendant and a and a prosecutor, and they're going at it, and they're they're pleading two different sides. Uh, they're 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 really trying to present two different possi- two different scenarios to the to the judge, to the jury, and, and to the audience. And you have to make your decision based on the weight of the evidence and 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 all of that involved. So it behooves you to have more evidence that points towards your story being accurate versus the guy who just says, "Well, I wasn't there. Well, do you have any? Uh, were you, were you there at the at the at the at the at, were you at the crime scene on the date of the crime?" No, I wasn't there. Do you have any alibis? No, I don't have any alibis. Well, the other guy, he has alibis. So you start to see that that evidence weighs in favor or against you, right? If you don't have credible witnesses, if you don't have evidence, if you don't have uh, – if your story just doesn't line up, um, everything has to corroborate. So 
in a sense, when we study Galatians and we hear the standard Christian answers as to what's going on, we take and look at that evidence and it looks great. But using careful exegesis, which is why it's called exegeting Galatians, we find that there's more evidence to also support a different view. And so we go with the view that has the more, most evidence to it. And the evidence seems to point that the standard Christian view has not answered all the questions adequately. Thus, also, there's that witness in our spirit that says, it just doesn't seem right. Why would Paul just, you know, it just doesn't set right. Why would Paul tell one group they can keep Torah, but the other group they couldn't? It doesn't, it doesn't fit with other key verses. So we go looking for different answers, and we find that there are, in fact, enough verses and evidence to support that there's something else going on in Galatians, and that's what we're going to look at. That's what this class is going to be about. It's a new perspective on Galatians. I say new in the sense that, in my opinion, here's your historical timeline. Here's 1st century, right? And here's 21st. It's supposed to be a 2. There's 21st century. Here's where we are now. I'm of the ilk that truth, let's say this is the ground level, truth was high in that day. But as the Judaisms went into went into hiding the Messianic Judaisms, and as the new emerging Christian church rose, then truth just went more or less underground for a while. And then until it's emerged and it's rising now again. So it's new in the sense that it's new for our century, but it's not new in the sense that it's never existed. We're just unearthing what has always been. So when I say new, that's what I mean. Does that help everyone? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeshua didn't tell him it doesn't I don't he didn't say Yeshua told me this blah 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 blah. Sometimes he does. It says Paul not an apostle of men but an apostle of Yeshua. Did he say but he didn't say go out and he didn't he didn't tell things about like what to do with the Gentiles, right? No, because we we gotta understand that Yeshua's um and that's a good question by the way. What how what is Yeshua's view of the Gentiles? Yeshua doesn't Yeshua's, it's almost like a ball game where you have many players and all the players are playing in concert towards a common goal to win the game. But each player has separate roles. So I'll just pick on football for a moment. In the metaphor of the football, just pick on a few players. You got the guy who, it, it, when, when they got the two kings things lined up at the line, they're facing each other and they're down in, they're, they're not moving yet. They're down in, uh, I forgot what the name of that line is. The scrimmage line? Line of scrimmage, okay. You can tell I follow football, right? But... <laughs> I'm not unfamiliar with it. I know a football is a brown object. It's about like that. Okay, it's got stitches on it. Anyway, they're down in this position, and one guy is handling the ball, and at a certain time, the quarterback yells out a command, and he, he passes the ball to the quarterback, and, the quarter, and then everybody starts moving. And they're moving against each other, but the guys on the offense are trying to score, and the guys on the defense are trying to stop him from scoring. So the guys on the offense have the ball. So the quarterback is looking for the wide receiver or something, right? Okay. The guy who's going out towards the touchdown zone, and he tries to pass it to him. So right there alone, and if he passes it to him and he catches the ball, then he runs it in, then they score. Um, at least that team scores, not the other one. So in one setting, you at least have three key players all operating towards the same goal. You have the guy who's who <laughs> hikes the ball. The guy, the guy who has, you guys are looking at me like I'm funny, but... I promise you, I don't follow football. Okay, the guy hikes the ball, the guy throws the ball, the guy catches the ball, the guy scores the touchdown. But they do it for the team. In a sense, it's almost like Yeshua took the ball as the quarterback, 
the ball being like the gospel and and the truth of him and the inclusion of the Gentiles and the Jews. And he threw it to Paul, and then Paul took it and ran it in. So Paul's mission is a little slightly different than Yeshua's, but they're both on the same team, and they then they're playing for the same coach, which is God. So Yeshua didn't have a lot of thought to say to the Gentiles, but Paul did. I mean, if that analogy can help you guys understand that. That's how I see it. All right, so... Um, Let's get a look at an overview of Paul from a new perspective. I've already given you the old perspective. Paul's telling the Gentiles that they don't need to keep the Torah. That's the bottom line to Galatians. If that's the case, he could have probably just written Galatians in one or two or three verses. We're not under law, wonder, grace. Any questions? Thank you. Signed, Paul. But it's not that cut and dry. Um, but more or less, that is the way it's viewed. And Christians will use it. And I'm not, I'm not against Christians. Um, we're, we're talking about a theology, and we're trying to examine it. Um, a lot of what the church got around about Paul is right, but some of it is wrong, and we need to try and get things shored up so that we can have a more accurate view of Galatians. Here's what we found as um, history has been our friend, and as the Spirit of God, I believe, is revealing things to us. Number one, Paul was not a Torah breaker. He was, he was pro-Torah all the way through and through. Not only was he pro-Torah for himself, he's, he's definitely pro-Torah for Jews. So at least we got that part out of the way. So far, the church agrees. Many Christians now are of the, of the impression that Paul was pro-Torah. But what we have to do now is ask the question of where do the Gentiles fit in. Amazingly, that's exactly where the first century Judaisms or the first century uh, communities had their biggest challenges. What do we do with the Gentiles? That's the problem, or I should say that's the question. In fact, that's the question for Galatians, Romans, Acts 15, Acts 21. A lot of passages find their Ephesians. A lot of passages find their locus in from a Jewish point of view, saying, "What do we do with the Gentiles?" That seems to be an issue. That it's still the question today. Yeah. So you uh, now I'm going to look at two people groups. On one hand, you have the, the the standard Christian church who says, "What do we do with the Gentiles?" And their answer is, "They're not under Torah." And you go over onto the other side of the fence and you ask the standard uh, synagogue, "What do you do with the Gentiles?" And their answer is identical. You're not under Torah. Isn't that neat that both groups have the same answer? So here we are in the middle of the fence going, but we love Torah, and we're not Jews. We Gentiles. So we Hebraics. Those in this room for the split moment, right? You know, those of us who the Spirit's tugging our hearts saying, Torah, Torah, right? Our heart beats for Torah. It beats for Yeshua, obviously. There's no competition. But different from our Christian brothers, we, beat, we like Torah. And different from our Jewish brothers, we love Yeshua. And Torah. Yeah, so we're in a dilemma, right? So that's where we are in Galatians. That's why that's where there's going to be a lot of practical application for today's situations as we study Galatians. So let me give you what, I, what I've come to understand in the last two to three years. But, I mean, I'm, I'm no one. Um, there are authors that go back to the middle 70s and early 80s who've been talking about what I'm going to talk about. In other words, this information has been out for like 20 years. But it's just now gaining an audience because um, maybe it's a grassroots movement. So, here's what I understand Galatians will be talking about. I said this last week, I'll say it again. The problem is not, the question is not how much Torah should the Gentiles keep. That's the wrong question to ask. That issue will come up, but it's not the primary question. The main question that should be asked is, what should we do with the Gentiles? Now, I'm speaking as if, again, the locus is Jewish Israel. What should we do with the Gentiles? Paul's going to come along, and by revelation of the Spirit, through Yeshua... He's going to understand that the Gentiles have been brought into Israel as full-fledged covenant members. The phrase full-fledged covenant member means that you have blessings promised to you in this age, 
as well as blessings promised to you in the age to come. Those terms, this age, age to come, are the term are the uh, phrases that were used by the Judaisms, and, and they're used today. More or less, the word saved was used, but not as often. Not in the way that we understand it. So, we're talking about covenant membership. How does one get into the covenant? The covenant, as understood from a Jewish point of view, is the promise, like a package, given to all Israel, corporately, corporate Israel. Of course, corporate Israel is comprised of individual Israelites, right? So, the Jewish mindset was that God gave this covenant promise to Israel. And the promise means blessings in this age and blessings in the world to come. Obviously, that's messianic when I say blessings in the world to come. Because once you die, if you're not in Messiah, then from our Christian understanding, either you're, either you're going to wake up to, to life or you're going to wake up to death. Right? There's a resurrection, Daniel says, chapter 12. All right, it's either to damnation or to, to uh, reward. So, um, but the, rab- or the, um, the Jewish people saw themselves as the recipients of the covenant blessings that God gave to them. Now, what they did is because God said you are all covenant members, only covenant members get my gift of Torah. So the Torah is like, he's, he's Israel. So there you go, take it. So I'm God, you get the Torah. We call that, and you guys are going to get this in your paper, covenantal, covenantal nomism. Uh, this is a phrase coined by E.P. Sanders in 1977. Um, thank you. Covenantal nomism. Basically, this, the root of this word means law. The word nomos in Greek, N-O-M-O-S, means law. And covenant, you guys know what covenant means. Diatheke is what it is in Greek. Um, so, and it means like testament or will or grant, whatever, promise. So um, a will based on, or the law is given only to covenant members is what I see this. This is my, is the written revelation of who I am, God said. It is my self-disclosure. And I only give it to covenant members. Therefore, if you're not a covenant member, you don't get this. And what is this? This is the written record of, the pro- of your promises. More or less, this is your, your, my, last, my will. <laughs> and I'll give it, I bequeath it to you, my covenant son, because you're in covenant with me that you get this. You walk in this and I'll reward you. Um, sounds very simple. And so Israel saw themselves as the recipients of this. What they didn't see was a way for the Gentile to get in to this without becoming a covenant member. What blinded them was, was the... Um, quality of covenant member, the status of a covenant member, if I will. So it's really an identity question when I say, what should we do with the Gentiles? It's an identity issue based on the fact that they are Gentiles. Just that fact alone. What does Gentile mean? The Greek word is ethnos. We get our word ethnic from that. E-T-H-N-O-S. Don't worry, all these Greek terms are in your papers too. When, when you get the whole stack, you'll have all these words too. So ethnos, Gentile. All right, what's that? Yeah, nations. Now, I I use the word Gentile because that's a working definition. But really, he's right. It means nation, from the nations. But um, isn't Israel a nation? Yes, so in a a weird way, uh, Israel is Gentiles. But we don't want to go there because that confuses. Um, The the Jewish world of Paul's day saw saw the world divided into two, two, or they had what we call a dualistic worldview. You were either Jews or you were not. Now, of sorts, it is kind of the same today, except, um, except if you visit someone from Chinese, from China, you call them, you, you give a national term rather than a, uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, you say their nationality is Chinese, but you, it's, it's kind of weird to call them 
Gentile, unless you're talking from a Jewish context. So, but anyway, ethnos, Gentile, or nation from the nations, and he's right. Um, their Jewish worldview only saw Jews and non-Jews, and therefore covenantal nomism was only for covenant members, and only a Jew could be a covenant member. It seems very workable solution, and a lot of it's based on truth. Because God, in fact, I can ask you questions that you'll respond yes to. Did God cut a covenant with any other nation on earth? No. So this is grounded in fact. It just steers off a little bit. Okay? God only made a covenant with Israel. That's true. And you do have to be grafted into Israel to be a part of the covenant. And once you are a covenant member, the Torah is yours. So a lot of it's based in fact. The part that they got wrong was Israel is not an ethnic set. If I could use the word ethnic, they understood it. Israel is comprised of Jews and non-Jews, but the rabbis don't see that. Or back in Paul's day, we'll call them proto-rabbis because they weren't technically rabbis yet. Uh, The sages didn't see that. They only saw Jews. Therefore, whenever we read the text and we read the stranger, all right? Now I'm going to jump back and forth between Hebrew and Greek terms. This is Greek. Now I'm going to use a Hebrew term. Um, Ger is the same thing. So whenever they read the word ger in the Tanakh, they imported their, uh, their social view of the, of the ger and gave that person the designation proselytos, or proselytos, which we get the word proselyte from. So they saw them as a person who was converting to Judaism, is what they did. Does that sound too confusing so far? No, okay. That's where Galatians comes in. Paul, here's what really happens then. Paul steps in, gives the Jew and the Gentile the genuine gospel. That part starts out right. Faith in Messiah plus nothing. Get you in. The Judaizers, I'm using that just limited now. Uh, later on in the, sh- in the, sh- in the show. <laughs> you can tell I've th- I got radio on my mind. Um, later on in the teaching, I won't use that word because I think it's pejorative and I don't like it. I'm going to adopt the term influencers instead. Um, the Judaizers were saying to the Gentiles... Um, you guys aren't full-fledged covenant members unless you become Jews. Now, notice that I've taken Torah observance out of the picture for a second. Rather than making Torah observance the focal point, I use status as the focal point. So what the... Thank you. Oh, okay. <laughs> what, the, um, what the leaders of Paul's day, in Paul's day, the Judaisms of Paul's day were teaching was is that only Jewish people could be covenant members. And as Jewish people, then you receive the Torah. Therefore, if a Gentile is caught doing Torah, something's wrong. If he's not, if he's not converted yet. So what they did is they, they looked through their, scanned through the scriptures of how to turn a Gentile into a Jew. And because there's nothing in the scriptures that today had to do it, they thought they'd help God out. So we're going to help God out. We're going to create what's known as a ritual of conversion. Okay? And in doing so, this is first century so far. In doing so, we'll outline the steps to take you from Gentile to Jew. And when you're done, you're a Jew in every way. Now, some people are, uh, your head's spinning by now, gone. But you can't change the leopard spots. Keep in mind that Jewishness is not merely or limited only to ethnicity. Jewishness ne- necessarily um, bespeaks more than just ethnicity. It, 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 it's, more, it's broader than that. So, they more or less came up with a ceremony that would turn a Gentile into a covenant member by turning him into a Jew. Or give, just changing his status. And if we use that term status, then it doesn't, seem too confusing because how many in here are married how many in here are single okay you all are of different status single and married are our st- status that's your station in life you're single married male female we're of different status now those things we shouldn't be messing around with male and female but we can change the, the married female thing 
We can you can change your station of life. Yes. Citizenship was part of it. You talked earlier how it was it had legal parameters. What would what would, what would be the benefit of someone converting to Judaism? In their day, keep in mind that Rome was the big brother. Right? Rome was watching, always watching. Everywhere they're watching, their eye was on you. Right? So as a Jewish people, even though they lived in their land, they were marginalized. They were shoved off to the side because Rome was, you know, Greece and Rome were the world powers. You know, Israel was just this itty-bitty little backwards people who cut themselves. And that's the way the Greeks looked at them. Mutilate your body? What are you, crazy? Especially that part? So, um... What Rome did is they, they allowed Israel to function within the land of Israel. They allowed the people of Israel to function. They gave them a status called collegia, which is, just means they were college, they were set aside. But they did not allow them to, for instance, cap, practice capital punishment. And they did not allow any new religions. So if you were a Roman citizen back in Paul's day, you, could, you had two options when it came to religions. You could be a Jew and practice Judaism, or you had to practice Roman uh, paganism. You had to bow down to the emperor of sorts. You owe, owe your allegiance to the emperor. And so you can imagine the dilemma that a Gentile Christian faced, what Paul was really asking of them. Hey, you Gentiles, don't convert and don't bow down to the emperor. What's left? Not much. Yeah. Paul's asking them to live in that place between the margin of your pages. There's nothing in there. I, I'm of the impression that the first century Christians, the Gentile ones, had incredible faith, far more than the Gentiles we meet today. I mean, to live in a time period when there was no new religions allowed, that's how we know that Paul didn't start a new religion. When people say, Paul started a new religion, he, he broke from Judaism and started Christianity, those are people who have not read their history books. In, in, my, in my understanding, history testifies that Rome allowed no re- new religions. They found new religions starting up, they squashed them real quick. It wasn't until they converted to, made Rome, or Christianity the official religion of Rome, that Christianity was very popular. But, but before then, you know, this was, this was centuries later, 300, 400 years later. But in Paul's day, back in the 50s and the 60s, that's when the Galatians was written, about 53 or so, um, there's no new religion. So when you embraced the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you naturally gravitated towards Judaism. That was all that was left. There was no First Baptist uh, Church down the street. There was no Lutheran church. There were no Muslim temples. None of that. None of that existed. It was Judaism or paganism. And so you can understand, they were going to be in the synagogues, the synagogue, um, the Greek word. They were there meeting and, and worshiping God, the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the same God we, we worship today. So it's natural for them to look like Jews. So you have the Roman um, guards coming in and trying to figure out, you, Gentile Christian, yeah, you weren't at the pagan temple last week. Why? Well, Paul told me not to worship the pagan emperor. Are you Jewish? No. <coughs> Off with your head. Not much choice. You, you weren't at the pagan temple last night. Where, are you Jewish? Yeah, I converted last week. Drop your pants. Okay, all right, you're exempt. And Paul's telling them not to, con- not to circumcise themselves, or at least not to convert. So you can see the dilemma they were, they were in. So, what, what we have in Galatians is Paul using the language of his day to describe the dilemma of his day. The dilemma was, what do we do with the Gentiles, as Gentiles? Now, you women are probably trying to scratch your head, well, circumcision doesn't apply to me. I'll get to that later. But the word circumcision in Paul's day, um, 
The word circumcision was a ter- technical term. It could be used one of any f- three or four different ways. Um, let me just throw some of them up here. You guys help me out. Circumcision. The Greek word is... That's the Hebrew word. Thank you. Mul. I, off the top of my head, I can't think of what the Greek word is. Um, I'll figure it out in a moment. But anyway, um, what is the Greek term for circumcision? Maybe you can look it up for me in a second. Anyway, huh? Ouch. <laughs> Surely a man's definition, right? So we got circumcision, right? Can I just put circ up there? Okay. So we, it means one, the um, the surgical procedure. With no religious overtones, right? Just means snip, snip. But it could also mean, refer to a Jewish person. Like in Galatians chapter 2, um, Paul says in verse 7, On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the good news for the uncircumcised. And the word there is acrobustia. It means foreskinned. And just as Kiva had been to the circumcised, peritoma, peritome, peritoma. I'm sorry. Peritoma. E is a uh in Greek. Peritoma. That's what it is. That's the noun. Peritemno is the is the verb. All right. Um, it could mean Jewish or Jews. You know what I mean. The, the body of the group of people, the the social group known as Jews, and when he says, "On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the good news for the uncircumcised," it means the non-Jews of the Gentiles, as Kiva had been for the circumcised. The word "circumcised" there, peritoma, um, that's the verb. I'm sorry, per, peritemno is the noun. Um, circumcised, the Jewish people or the Jews. But there's another u- um, usage of it that um, we're not aware that many many Christians aren't aware of, but we're aware of now because of um, careful study. In chapter 5, verse 4, actually verse 3, Paul says, Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you undergo circumcision, that the Christ will be of no advantage to you at all. Now we have to look at this and say, if I get surgically circumcised, or if I become Jewish, or if I'm a Jew. And so we have to ask ourselves, what's happening? Actually, what the word circumcised is referring to is convert to Judaism. But we have to qualify, because converting to Judaism doesn't merely upset Messiah's work. Convert to Judaism for covenant membership. That's what that means. But he uses the simple term peritoma for this. Convert to Judaism for covenant membership. That is to say, Paul's going to say to the Gentiles, if you think that lasting covenant membership is based on your ethnicity or based on your status, your, your status as a Jew or a Gentile or non-Jew, then you're missing the whole point. Messiah died for all men, Paul's going to say. And his good news of salvation or his grace is extended to all people groups equally, Jew and Gentile. That's what he says explicitly in Romans 3.29. Is God the God of the Jews only? No. He answers his question. He's the God of the Jews and the Gentiles. Um, So conversion to Judaism for the sake of gaining covenant membership would be a misuse of conversion. Paul simply uses the phrase 
circumcision in that verse. I, Paul, tell you that if you become circumcised, Christ is no advantage, of a, advantage to you. The Christian church, not understanding this use, looks at the surgical procedure and says, clearly Paul is uprooting a Torah command. Because does not the Torah command males, uh, baby boys, to be circumcised on the eighth day? It's in Leviticus chapter, what is it, three? Four? No, it's not that early. It's later than that, like chapter eight, I think. And that's the only place it's found, by the way. Other than that, it's found in, in, in the Genesis narrative, Genesis chapter 17. Yeah, 17. Um, so conversion to Judaism for the sake of gaining covenant membership, Paul would say, no, that's not how you gain covenant membership. How do you gain covenant membership? Placing your faith in Messiah, which creates a problem for, for the Gentiles and the Jews. How? For the Gentile who wants to convert because he thinks his status is going to make to, to he thinks his change of status is going to um, move God's hand to invite him into the covenant, they're going about it wrong. There's no faith involved. It's simply a work or an action. But also for the Jew who thinks he's already in because he's Jewish, Paul's going to say, you buddy need faith too. So he's not letting either group off the hook. This is why he's in such hot water. This is why they're out to kill him. Because Paul is upsetting the apple cart. By the way, if Paul were coming along teaching that the Torah was done away with, they'd be out to kill him as well. And we should too. <laughs> right? God clearly warns us that if someone comes along trying to tell you to follow any other way other than the Torah, that that person is stepping into the shoes of a false prophet. So we know that Paul couldn't have come along and said that the Torah is done away with. Anyway, who to listen to him? In their day, Paul's going around, the Torah is done away with, the Torah is done away with. What would they have said? You heretic, get out of here. Gonna run him out or or run, or kill him. Yeah. So the, the the position that the church takes that Paul's teaching the Torah is done away with is also untenable. This fits better with history. This also fits with the um it, uh, with the evidence that has been unearthed, like for instance at Qumran. The Qumranis were a good example to study because they were a sect. They were a group that believed that the um that the societies were corrupted. The Qumranis, the people who lived down near the Dead Sea. And we have their legacy left to us in what writings? Dead the Dead Sea Scrolls, right. And they were, they were extant in Paul's day. That's to say they are kind of contemporaries. So their views aren't too far off from one another. The Qumranis, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Essenes, there's a couple different names they go by. Um, this people group looked at the Pharisees and said, you guys are corrupt. They looked at the Sadducees and said, you guys are corrupt. So they stepped back out into the desert and said, we reject the whole social system. We're just going to worship God in the desert because we believe we've got the answers. All right. They're, they're entitled to that. So what they did is they called their group the Yachad. Y-A-C-H-A-D. It means the unity. The Yachad. We got, it's from the root word Echad. They called themselves the Yachad. And as an Echad member or a Yachad member, they laid certain requirements on their group members. So I'm the leader of the Yachad and I say, you want to be a covenant member? Well, first of all, you have to be a Jew. And so they use the language. And then once you're a Jew, you've got to be a righteous Jew. I mean, we can't let you, let you in the group and allow you to live your life any old kind of way. This is the rules and how you... The, so, and their, their leaders were called teachers of righteousness and things like that. They had a very highly developed messianic view, which is really neat if you're a mess, messianic and you read their viewpoints. But the bottom line is, the language that they used was intra-Jewish language. Jewish language designed to make sense to fellow Jews, but didn't make sense to people outside of the group. It was intergroup language. And some of the phrases they used were works of law and under law, things like that. 
The same phrases that Paul uses, because it is an intergroup argument. Who's in? Who's out? How do you get in? How do you get kicked out? That type of stuff. That's the best way to understand Galatians. However, it is, in fact, known that once you're in the group, Torah observance is incumbent upon you as a group member. But that's not the primary issue. That's not how you get in the group. The church seems to see... I keep jumping back and forth between the church view and what I call the accurate view. Am I losing anybody with that? When I say the church view and then I jump back and forth to the other view. The church seems to think that somehow the Judaisms of Paul's day believed that if we keep Torah, we're in. Or if we keep Torah, we're saved. There are many problems with that um, theory. Not least of which is that all of the Torah cannot be kept by a single person. But not being familiar with the Torah, you reduce the Torah to something that you think you can keep. Now the church does believe that no one can keep the Torah perfectly, but they don't base it on logic. They base it on some type of a um, spiritual fact that man is a fallen man and therefore he can't keep God's laws perfectly. He's always going to fall short. As if it's like a set of dots between me and the door and there's ten of them. And if I can just step on the dots, it's 810, right? Okay. If I can just step on all the dots like a twister game of sorts, I can work my way to heaven. I step on the dots. And in the church's view, because I'm a fallen man, I get halfway down the path and I just crumble under my sin and I have to back up and start over. You know, you got to start back at the beginning and you keep going. You get a little farther this time because you're committed and then you crumble again. That's the way they see Torah as some simplistic twister game that you can reach the end if you follow, if you're, if you've got enough, you know, faith to do it. But that's not the way the Torah is outlined anyway. The Torah contains both commandments and prohibitions and remedies for sin as well as um, and things like that. So if you're going to walk in the Torah, the Torah presumes that you're going to sin. Because if you want to keep the Torah, you have to keep the remedies as well, which means you have to sin first to keep the remedy. Plus, some of the Torah is designed to be walked by women. Some of the Torah is designed to be walked by priests, others by king, others by men, others by grown men, others by young men. The Torah is not a, a document that could be walked out by any single person. Therefore, to, to ostensibly teach that if I keep the Torah, I'll be saved, is to misunderstand the Torah fundamentally. Therefore, when you hear the Christian church say, well, the Judaisms of Paul's day thought that, that they needed to keep the Torah to be saved, this tells you that the person saying that or the teaching is simply not understanding how the Torah is to be kept. It's not the way it was. And even Jesus didn't keep all of the Torah. Because all of the Torah cannot be kept by one single person. Nor can it be kept by one man. I can tell you right now, I've said this before, I'll say it again. Jesus did not keep the laws of Nidah. What are the laws of Nidah, you may ask? They're the laws are governing the menstruating woman. Jesus could not have kept those. Now that doesn't mean he didn't respect them. That doesn't mean he, up, he didn't uphold the law as a whole. But it means, as a man, he didn't walk into them. No man can. We're not designed that way. We're different. We're different. We're just different. <laughs> so, so, the bottom line is, um, we need to go back and, as we study Galatians, realize that uh, the best argument is, like a, again, a court case, is the argument that, uh, that plays into um, allowing Paul to speak for himself, allowing history to... to um, uh, I should say, uh, what would you say history does? It, it um, validates the Torah. The Torah is our, the Bible itself, the whole, the whole of the Bible, the whole of the scriptures, is our primary witness. Hi- history simply comes along and supports what this says. Right? 
And history supports the view that we're talking about today. So that's going to be the better way to look at, look at Paul. Um, some things that will help us as we're looking through this is knowing that Paul is using terms that in his day carried slightly different terms. And that's where we're going to go down that road first. We're going to look at circumcision, talk about what it means. Then we're going to talk about law. When Paul used the word law, I'll, I'll close with this. That's law. But that could mean Roman law. That could mean uh, divine law. That could simply mean um, uh, what we call general law or civil, yeah, civil law, whatever. I mean, it could mean um, rabbinic law. Yeah, what we call oral tradition. But it's all the same word, namas. And so Paul, and, and there's no clear cut between them sometimes. So when Paul uses a phrase like under the law or under law, we have to ask ourselves, what law, what does it mean to be under it? Under rabbinic law? Under divine law? God's law? Under Roman law? Under civil law? What does Paul mean? That's what we have to ask ourselves. And he doesn't give us the benefit sometimes. We just have to go to, we have to, go to context. How many of you in Mark's hermeneutics class? Yeah, that's what's going to end up happening. We have to exegete the path. We have to exegete Galatians. That's why I call it exegeting Galatians. We have to exegete it from a historical point of view, not from our own supposed point of view. So, make sense? All right, let me close. One minute, go. Is it 8 10? It's 8.10. I'm out at 8.10, right? So you guys got five minutes to go. Is that right? Let me look at this sign. Hold on real quick. Excuse me. Now, I didn't go five minutes over last week. Ah! It does go to 8.05. How come somebody didn't warn me? Did he say that? I'm going to take that paper and post it up here. Okay, then I apologize. Hold it. Let me, let me pray and dismiss it, and then you're, you're done. Abba, we thank you for this class. We thank you for your faithfulness in uh, drawing us unto yourself. Father, we desperately seek to uh, understand your words and your ways so that we can be pleasing to you. And so for that very reason, we open the pages of your Torah and we study diligently. Help us to put to practice the things that we learn. And help us to extend mercy and grace to those around us who are also learning. For we do all of these things to glorify your son, Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God walk in all his ways to love him to serve the lord your god with all your heart and with all your soul and to observe the lord's commands and decrees that i am giving you today for your own good to the lord your god belong the heavens even the highest heavens the earth and everything in it yet the lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them and he chose you their descendants above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. 
For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.